Father, we uh, rejoice that we get to come together at the end of our uh, Lord's Day. We get to join together and open your word. We get to talk about your word and how it is that you have um, brought this salvation to us. That which was in your mind, and as we will see today, that which was agreed upon, covenanted together within uh, the Trinity, has been brought into history and brought right down to us where uh, application of salvation is made to us so that we get to be your children. We here in the 21st century in Fallon, America, get to be your children, and we are very blessed. And we pray that you would help us in our time now to think about a topic that maybe we've not thought often about, but I pray that we would think well, that we would see what your word has to say on the topic of covenant and how that relates to us and why it matters. So we ask for your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and as you're uh, turning your way there, I know that this topic of covenant theology is uh, obviously an important one for us in, uh, in our church and one that we want to talk about. I know that um, even several months ago already, I would have people uh, coming to me with questions, uh, wanting uh, books to read, wanting um, uh, lessons, uh, lectures, uh, classes, preaching on this topic so that we could uh, examine the topic of covenant theology and see what it is and, and where it is in Scripture and whether it's in Scripture and what it means and all of that. And so the time has come for that. We've been uh, holding off for uh, the summer uh, to deal with other matters, but now we wanted to uh, begin to address this topic of covenant theology. And we're going to start by looking at Titus chapter 1, and I want to read for us here just the first three verses, and I'm just going to make some comments. Uh, this uh, message tonight won't really be an exposition in any way of these first three verses, but it raises questions for us regarding this topic of covenant and covenant theology. And so I'm going to read Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And so, I don't know how many times you've read... Um, Titus, I don't know how many times you've read those verses or we have preached them here or whatnot, but there are some questions that are raised when we read these verses. Uh, it starts off, you know, typical kind of Pauline kind of writing, starts off with his name, uh, declares who he is, that he's, a, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, etc., and the purpose for which he's writing for this, uh, the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. But then verse 2 it uh, raises some questions for us if we think carefully about the wording and uh, the things that are said here. When, when we read God's Word, we need to be careful and pay attention to the wording of how things are said. Sometimes we can breeze through pretty quickly and miss some of the details that are key. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, 
Right, so we're talking about this topic of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So think about that for a moment. What is the promise that is found in these verses? It is God who is doing the promising. What does He promise in these verses? He promises eternal life right? So here in these verses, Paul is discussing that his ministry is about making known, promulgating this promise of eternal life. When was that promise made? In your text there, what do you see? Before the ages began, it says, right? So before, before, Right Before time, the promise is made. So that's, that's interesting because who was around to receive a promise from God before the ages began? Yeah, before creation, the only... Uh, the only one with existence was our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no one else. And so this promise, the promise of eternal life is being made, it would certainly seem from the wording of this passage. Actually, the wording of this passage seems to require it, that the promise is made within the Trinity. So there's an agreement, there's a discussion, there's a promise being made all the way back before time even began. There's a promise being made about eternal life and given within the Trinity in some way. So that, so that one person of the Godhead says to another person of the Godhead, here's a promise of eternal life. Okay. And so that, uh, that's interesting for us. That raises questions for us because when we think about salvation, when we think about how the Bible works, when we think about um, all that has gone on with what, uh, what has happened that you read in the Bible, Paul roots it here in the deep, deep past before there was time. And he says there was a promise made of eternal life not after Adam and Eve had sinned. We're used to reading Genesis 3.15. And we see that there's a promise made of life there. Paul says, well, there was one before that. But there was no one else around to receive it. There was no one, uh, there was no, no person who had sinned. This was conversation, agreement, promise, covenant between the persons of the Godhead, agreeing on what they're going to do, promising that there was going to be eternal life given. And so that raises the question for us that really uh, is the place I want to start for our conversation about covenant theology is how do we think about how the Bible is put together? Or how do we think about how it is that salvation comes to us through history and through time? Whose idea was it? What was the background of it? How did it come about? 
Why do we have salvation? How is all that accomplished? And this verse points us back to perhaps a broader scope than we're normally used to hearing, right? Perhaps when we read the Bible and, uh, and read through Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we read about all that goes on there, and then we come to chapter 3, and now suddenly salvation becomes an issue because sin has entered the picture. And so we begin to think in terms of, of redemption, and this Redeemer, the the, uh, the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, and that enters the picture already in chapter 3, and we're seeing that developed in, uh, in Genesis, and you'll see it developed really through the rest of the Bible. But Paul is saying there is a time uh, before that where there was a plan made. There was a covenant arrangement arrived at. There was a promise made even before sin entered the picture, before Adam and Eve had even sinned, before the world had been created, before anything, there was a promise already given. And so that raises questions for us. It kind of piques our curiosity about what's going on. Perhaps there's, perhaps there's a larger story going on in Scripture maybe than we've thought about before. And covenant theology, which is our topic for this whole semester really, Covenant theology is the study of that promise that we see there in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, the promise of eternal life made in, in, in eternity and how it has been worked out practically in history. So that's really, in a nutshell, the study of covenant theology is looking at that promise of eternal life and seeing how it's gone from discussion, covenant, between Father, Son, and Spirit before creation to being played out in our day and age, and then ultimately how it will come to consummation in the end. What's the grand story overarching? That's the topic that, that we are going to look at uh, during this next couple of months. Was that a hand, Lou? ESV and you use what? New American Standard. Gotcha. Yes. No. Well, so you, you have a note down there in the bottom of, of the ESV also if you, you want to look over at Rick in his very helpful Bible there. And actually, you might have a note, um, a footnote there in your New American Standard as well. It points to the eternity of it, before times eternal. It's trying to pitch it as far back as we can imagine. Of course, we run into difficulty because we want to say before time. But before is a temporal term, has to do with time, and we're saying before that. Logically, philosophically, it's difficult, but it's trying to pitch it as far back as possible before anything else, at the beginning, before the beginning, is what it's, what it's trying to pitch back there. And so covenant theology, very simply, we're going we're gonna to define it a little bit more uh, professionally than I've done to this point, but really, it's really the study of that promise and how it works out. Trying to understand this conversation from before time to uh, it's working out in history in salvation of sinners and then how it's going to come to conclusion 
at the end. That's really the study of covenant theology is that discussion, examining history by means of covenants. And so that raises the question for us that's important for us to think about. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? Well, our, uh, uh, con- the confession we've been working through in Sunday school, which uh, there are copies up here if you, if you need to grab one, uh, if you don't have one of your own. Um, but in chapter 7 and paragraph 1 of the Second London Confession of 1689, we read this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He has been pleased to express by way of covenant. In other words, the distinction, the difference between Creator and creature is so great that there is no inherent way for us to relate. There is no built-in way for us to relate to Him, particularly in regard to fulfillment of obedience and thus attaining eternal life from Him. Based upon what grounds would we, the creature, finite, small, we're not even talking about sinful yet. That's, That's another layer added to it, but even just Just the creature itself, based upon what would the creature be able to claim the reward from God? You know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, someone won a lottery for like 1.5 billion or some bigger thing, I don't know, numbers that are so big, they're like noise to me, but but in order to claim that, you got to show up with the ticket. You have to show up with, Right? You've got to show up with that receipt to, to say, here is my lottery ticket. I'm the winner, right? No one else has legal grounds to go and claim the billions of dollars, right? Unless they have that ticket. You've got to have that ticket. So that ticket is, is the justification or the reason this person can come and claim that prize. Well, that's only billions of dollars. Who cares? We're talking about eternal life. Based upon what can we as creatures come to God and say, give me something of greater value than billions of dollars? And what what the confession here is saying is that in order for man, in order for uh, the creature, though he owes obedience to God, in order for him to claim the benefit of obedience claim any benefits from God, there must be a covenant established between creator and creature. And even if you think about that lottery ticket, that's a form of covenant. You went in, you bought the ticket. I've never done this, by the way, I imagine. You go in and you buy the ticket, and that ticket and your possession of it is covenant of sorts, your legal right to get to go and claim your billions if you win, right? So when you bought that, the agreement was, hey, if, I, if my number is drawn or however that works, I get to go claim the money, right? And so there's a covenant relationship there, and basically 
what we understand from the confession is that the distinction, the distance between God and man is so great that it requires God to condescend, to come down, to stoop down, to, to agree with the creature that the creature, if he does this, will receive this, that there be a covenant relationship between the two. So it's necessary when our Creator God relates to mankind that He does so in the form of covenant. There's a relationship established. We see that all the way through Scripture, that relationship uh, with God, between God and man, is always by means of covenant. God establishes covenant with man. So that's the reason for the necessity of covenant. And of course, I've talked about even man not in his sinfulness. There needs to be covenant. Now you enter sin in the picture? That makes it all that much worse because man is, uh, is not, only f- not only finite, but he's fallen. He's rebellious. And so he certainly requires covenant uh, to be in relationship with God. So what is a, what is a covenant? Simply, the uh, children's catechism, which, which we use, defines covenant as an agreement between two or more parties. Very, very simple, and perhaps a little too simple, but you can get your hands around that concept of covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. It is is both, (coughs) excuse me, it is both a relationship and a contract. It is both a relationship and a contract. In other words, there is legal obligation. It's not just, um, okay, we're going to do this thing together and you go and do this thing. There is some sort of legal obligation there. It is relationship and contract. It contains promises and it contains obligations. One author defined it this way. He calls it, a binding relationship between parties that involves both blessings and obligations. There's a binding aspect. There's a legal aspect. And so that's the idea of covenant. Perhaps an example would be in order. And uh, the best example I can think of in our day and age, there are all kinds of contracts and, uh, and covenants that we possibly might enter into, but probably the one that helps us the most in thinking about this is marriage itself. Marriage is a covenant relationship. And of course, it is a relationship, right? And it's primary, primarily a relationship that you have with your spouse. You've, you've entered into this relationship, and it's, 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 it's very special, it's very personal, uh, it's unique, and all of those sorts of things. But there's, there are also certain promises and obligations that come with it. There's a legal aspect to the relationship. And there are certain consequences when certain actions are taken within the marriage covenant. And so in the, you might think of it in terms of, you know, in our day and age, it's extremely common for young couples to live together and they don't see what's the difference between marriage and living together and we love each other. And, and so what's really the difference anyway, right? Well, <clears throat> do you have a clearer and more binding understanding of your relationship the nature of your relationship with or without the covenant of marriage. With the covenant of marriage, you have clarified 
for yourself and before the state, frankly, <laughs> that there is a unique relationship you have entered into that has obligations. And if something is to happen in this covenant relationship and there is to be a divorce, there will be consequences. There might be financial consequences. Certainly, you have to sue for divorce. You have to pursue certain things. There are obligations that are extremely different than just a man and a woman living together. They might love each other, and they might have children together, and they might buy a house together, and they might do all of these other things, but do they have the same obligation, the same commitment, clarified relationship with one another? They don't. They don't. So marriage helps us understand perhaps the nature of this covenant relationship that it is a relationship and it's a contract. There are legal obligations that come with it. You are bound to it. Okay? And so, covenant theology seeks to explain and define for us and make clear for us the nature of that relationship, that covenant relationship that we are in with God. Trying to lay out what it looks like, what is involved, what it means, etc. And so, covenant theology seeks to do that. So that raises uh, a question of wanting to go a little bit deeper into the idea of covenant theology. What is covenant theology? Uh, one author put it this way, it's a study of God's eternal, unchanging purpose to bring a people to himself through covenantal relationship. So covenant theology is the study of what God is doing the study of God's eternal, unchanging purpose that we read about there in Titus 1-2. And what is His purpose? His purpose is to bring a people to Himself by means of covenant, through covenant relationship. Okay. Or another author puts it this way, covenant theology is an approach to biblical interpretation that appreciates the importance of the covenants for understanding the divine human relationship and the unfolding of redemptive history in Scripture. It's an approach to biblical interpretation that recognizes and appreciates the role of covenant in Scripture itself. Does the word covenant appear in the Bible? 300 or so times. Okay, it's a relatively common term. And we can observe certain patterns. We can observe certain aspects of covenant. We can look at the various covenants in the Bible and begin to see how they relate to one another. We can look at the various covenants in the Bible and see how they're building uh, towards an understanding of salvation that, that, uh, that we are going to understand much more clearly in uh, the New Testament. All right, so covenant theology is approach to studying God's plan, recognizing He relates to us by means of covenant. So let's pay attention to those. He brings about the relationship between God and man by means of covenant, and so let's study and look at how he has unfolded this plan of redemption in the course of history and in the course of Scripture. That's the topic of covenant theology, trying to understand what it is God is doing and recognizing that he works by means of covenant. And so it clearly studies the, the, the biblical covenants that we found, uh, find ex, um, explicitly referenced in the Bible itself. And we're used to studying these covenants. We're used to examining these, the Noahic covenant, right? 
God's, God's covenant with Noah, uh, with Noah and really with all of creation at the same time. That, that is uh, the nature of that covenant. Or perhaps the Abrahamic covenant. You run across that in Scripture. It's referred to at the time. You see it building in 12 of Genesis and 15 and 17 and, and on and on. You see, and you see it referred to in the New Testament. That idea of covenant between, between uh, God and Abraham is something that we're used to looking at. We're used to thinking about the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant uh, being given there in, in Exodus 19 and 20 and following. The people of uh, Israel have been brought up out of the land of Egypt, and they are on their way, and they meet uh, with God at Sinai. And God establishes this covenant, and it is mediated by Moses, and so it's called the Mosaic Covenant. Well, we see when we look at the, these, that there's a certain relationship between these covenants. We see that the ideas expressed in the covenants are, are building. They're helping us to understand. They're establishing certain things that are going to clarify for us uh, what this salvation is going to end up being, what we're going to learn uh, when we come to the New Testament. So you got the Noahic covenant. you got the Abrahamic covenant. you got the Mosaic covenant. What's next? What's the next one? Davidic covenant, right? So there's this covenant that's established in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a covenant that's established between God and David. Certain promises made, certain obligations, certain things involved in establishing this covenant relationship. So we're used to looking at the Davidic covenant. And of course, later, uh, after the time of David, you're going to see that referenced back to. And, and, and all the way through the Old Testament, you're going to see a conversation about David and about being a child of David or a son of David. And, and what that means. And then you get into the New Testament, and sometimes Jesus is called Jesus, son of David. There's reference back to that covenant. And so we need to understand that covenant and how it relates. And then finally, what's the, what's the final covenant that we run across in the Bible historically? What's that? It's the new covenant, right? So we have the promise in Jeremiah 31 of this new covenant. It's going to be different than the one before. It's not, not like the one I made with them that they broke. By the way, I'm going to make this new covenant, and here's what's going to be involved. Here are the promises. Here are the things that are going to be involved. And does the new covenant ever have to do with salvation? Boy, it, does it ever. It is so clear. It's about, it's about God, God reaching right into the heart and placing His Spirit there into the heart of the person who had formerly had a heart of stone has now been given a heart of flesh, and God is going to work, and they're going to obey God. They're going to be able to do that, and there's going to be a, a different... It's a covenant being established. And so we're kind of used to looking at, at these covenants. These are, these are the biblical covenants. Uh, we call them because they are ex explicitly mentioned, explicitly built upon. You can see how they are sort of the points of development through the course of the Bible, uh, as we work through our reading, as we think through the Bible, you can think your way through by reference to these different covenants to understand this message, this salvation that is being built, right? And so it's, uh, we're, we're used to studying those kind of covenants. Perhaps maybe we're not used to studying them together. Maybe we studied the Noahic because we were in that chapter of Genesis and then Chapters later, we get to Abraham and we talk about Abraham and the covenant there, and we see that develop. But maybe we don't see the relationship between all of these biblical covenants. Covenant theology is going to focus on that. But there are other covenants as well that 
covenant theology is going to focus on that, that are uh, perhaps new to us, perhaps surprising to us, something certainly that we've not studied before. You've, you've heard messages preached uh, on all of those other covenants. But there are other covenants that covenant theology recognizes uh, as well, and these are less explicitly stated uh, in the Bible, but they are nevertheless pre- present. And these are primarily, these, these three covenants are the ones we're talking about, okay? There's a covenant of redemption, there's a covenant of works, and there's a covenant of grace. Now, different covenant theologians will talk about those using different language. They might use different names for different reasons to talk about those things. And, and when you go to the concordance in the back of your Bible, or you're typing in your phone and you're searching for a phrase, you're probably not going to find the phrase covenant of works. You're not going to find the phrase covenant of redemption. And that has led many to believe that therefore they don't exist, that therefore the Bible doesn't teach such a thing. When we study covenant theology, we see that there, there are patterns in Scripture. We see that there are aspects in Scripture that can only be explained and can only be understood with reference to these broader covenants that aren't explicitly named in Scripture. For example, we were looking at Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. We've defined covenant as a relationship that's, that's established with promises being given and, and other things. It sure seems like there in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 that there's a promise being made, promise of eternal life. There's blessing that comes with it, right? It seems like we're, we're having a reference here to a covenant being established. But what covenant in Scripture is this? It's, it's be- between the members of the Godhead. So it's not the Noahic, it's not the Abrahamic, it's not the Mosaic, and on and on. There's something different. This is a covenant being referred to. It's not called a covenant here. But the elements of it are there, and we're going to see the elements of it present in other places. But what name do we put to this? Is it wrong to put a name to it? Is it wrong to put a name to uh, the Bible's teaching that God eternally exists as Uh, one being in three persons? Is it wrong to put a name to that? Is it unbiblical to reference the Trinity? If you you look in your same concordance in the back of your Bible, you won't find the word Trinity either. You can search all you want on your phone, and you're not going to find Trinity in the Bible. But those concepts are everywhere. It's not wrong for us in examining what Scripture teaches about something to come up with an unbiblical word to define a biblical concept. And so when we come to uh, this verse, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, we're left with a decision. What are we going to do? How, how, do we, how do we understand this covenant that's going on here? This is a peek into this covenant. It's a promise of eternal life. It's, it's got to be between the members of the Godhead and, and before all time. And, and, and where do we fit that? That's not, it doesn't have a name when we read the Bible. But it's there. It's there. And likewise, uh, turn over, if you would, to uh, John chapter 17. We see evidence when we're reading the Bible, evidence all over the place. And, and by the way, as soon as you begin to see the evidence, you'll begin to see the evidence everywhere, that it is all over the place, that, that though we don't read the terms 
of these covenants, the covenant of redemption or works or grace, yet we see those concepts everywhere. So here we are in John chapter 17, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, and we're going to spend, as we go through this semester, we're going to look more closely. What I'm trying to do today is help us to see that the concepts of God promising and delivering redemption by means of covenant is a biblical concept. It is all over the place, and it's a broad uh, framework that helps us see what the Scripture is doing. And so we're going to go and look in greater detail at these passages, but today, uh, by means of introduction, I want us to think about this uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read the first few verses. But if you think about this, um, this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. In the Gospel of John, we're, we're rushing right to the crucifixion, okay? And so this is, this is the end of Jesus' ministry, and He goes to the Lord in prayer, and this is what He says, and I want you to listen for the covenantal language, right? A covenant between two parties would give instructions of obligations and reward when those obligations are kept. Let's listen for that kind of language. John chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. Something has been received. It's been given by the Father. It's been given to the Son. Authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given Him, by the way. It seems like that's by arrangement. The Father has given the Son authority, and He's given the Son a people and authority to give life to those people. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, listen, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Do you hear the covenantal language? Do you hear that an assignment or an agreement was made between Father and Son? That the Son was going to do particular things. The Father was going to do particular things as well. The Father gives the authority to give life. The Father gives the people to whom He's to give life. And what does the Son do? Well, He says here, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Well, we're near the end of Jesus' life. What He's saying is that I have done what you gave me to do. I have lived in obedience. I have taught what you gave me to teach. And we could wrap up in this the sacrifice that He's just about to make. And He says, I have done the things that you gave me to do. I've accomplished my end of the deal, as it were. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Jesus seems to be saying, I have done what you told me to do, and so now it's your turn. It's your turn to do your part. There's another part in our arrangement. And so, now, Father, having done that, since I have accomplished that, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. There's a people whom the Father gave to the Son. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. So the Father had a people. He gave the people to the Son. Those people have kept his word. And now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. The, the Son passed on to his own, those given him by the Father, the very words the Father gave him to say, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. There's a relationship where Jesus is the one who is sent by the Father. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. Right? And he continues in this prayer, but you see the elements there. That Jesus, having come to the conclusion of his ministry, moving towards the cross, it's imminent that he's going to the cross. He's praying. He's praying for his disciples and he's praying for us, by the way. And he's saying, I have accomplished all that you gave me to do. Now, give me the reward that was your end of the deal. You see, there's a, there's a relationship established there. And you can see this, by the way, all over the place, particularly in John. That there's, there's a, a sense of mission that Jesus has that, that, that comes with certain rewards, certainly reward to you and me, but reward to Him as well. And that mission that He is on is not just a spontaneous thing that He decided one day He was going to do. It was the result of agreement between Father and Son and we see in, in John 14 and John 16 between the Spirit as well because the Spirit has His role. There's, there's, there's this idea in John that when you read it and you observe, the first time you observe it, you'll see it's all over the place. That the Father, the Father has sent the Son to do the work of redemption. The Father has elected those He's going to save and given those to the Son to accomplish that redemption on their behalf. And then He has sent the Spirit to apply that redemption in the lives of you and me. That there is reward involved. There, is, there are obligations involved. There are promises involved. There's a relationship that is formalized in this covenant relationship between them. We call that the covenant of redemption. This is God's plan. This is what's being referred to in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. He's referring to this plan of eternal life. It's being made known. It's being revealed in time and space, particularly in the preaching of God's Word now. That's the covenant of redemption. And so when we look at Scripture, we see that there are these other covenants, these other covenant relationships going on that we don't have names for. You don't, you don't find in your Bible somewhere, the name for that particular covenant, but you sure see the covenant. You see the effects of the covenant. Where this really came home to me was when I was preaching through Romans and got to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following is that great section in explaining how it is that this gospel comes to you and me, how it is that 
that sinners like us can be, can be declared righteous in God's sight. And in order to do that, Paul spells out very clearly, you were in Adam. And when Adam fell, you fell. And the consequences Adam, are your consequences that you've inherited. And the sin that Adam committed, you follow right after it. You are in, you were born in Adam. And I said in the midst of that sermon, that's called federal headship. Adam is the representative. He's a public figure. He wasn't just some guy in a garden somewhere. He represented all of us, represented all of humanity. He was the federal head. He was the covenant head, the representative of all of us. His actions had consequence for us. Just like the actions of our government, if our government were to declare war on Antarctica, you and I would be at war with Antarctica. Except for my wife, because she's Canadian. <laughs> it's a covenant relationship. So what Adam did affects us. We bear the consequences of it. But, Paul goes on in explaining in Romans chapter 5, you have all that's in Adam, but, but Christ came on the scene. And where Adam sinned, what did Christ do? He was obedient. And so, not only was he obedient, but he has eternal life. That there, There's blessing in him. That he, by his act of obedience, actually can make others righteous so that they can be counted righteous in God's sight as well. And and so you've got these two covenant heads because Jesus wasn't just some guy in a garden somewhere either. He wasn't just a man hanging on the tree. He wasn't just uh, a man in Galilee and in Jerusalem who was obedient to the law. He was a public figure representing all of those the Father had given him. His obedience counts to them. His sacrifice for sin counts to them. His righteousness counts for them. The eternal life that He has to give, that the Father gave Him to give and gave the authority to give to those whom He had given Him, you and me, He gives. And so you see in Romans chapter 5, the working out of these other two covenants, the covenant of works in Adam and the covenant of grace in Christ. You see this, this beautiful covenantal language looking to our federal heads, looking to Adam and the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans chapter 5. You have these covenant heads representing those who are in them. That, that's, in a nutshell, covenant theology, trying to understand the interweaving of all of that, how that all plays out, how it comes about. And so why does it matter? Again, I know this is... This is 30,000 foot view. I, I know that. I know we're not getting to details and, and you've got, you want to talk about this passage and that and we, we will, Lord willing, get to that passage. But why does it matter? I hope I've been able to show that, that there are inklings, there are hints, there are more than hints in Scripture of these covenants going on behind the scenes that we've perhaps never put a label to. Maybe we've never thought about them. I remember uh, reading, through, reading through the Bible before ever encountering covenant theology and being confused about a lot of stuff, like Romans 5, not really getting a grasp on what was being taught there, not really understanding John and, and why Jesus talks about salvation the way he does in John, certainly not understanding John 17. But as you see, these covenant relationships, 
you see that it begins to make sense and it gives a framework to help us understand. And that framework, by the way, is not something that theologians cooked up in the other room and then brought and laid over the top of Scripture, like a prism to read Scripture through. That's a, that's a common misconception, that theologians just came up with it somewhere and it's a way that they read Scripture. And so uh, it's kind of their hermeneutic in a sense. I was talking with a recent high school graduate and he was part of his uh, education in English was to read, they were supposed to read whatever text they were reading through different hermeneutics, and one of them was a Marxist lens. So you're supposed to read it as if you were a Marxist and see what you could get out of it, right? So they were taking this Marxism and foisting it on whatever text they were reading, which I think is crazy if you understand anything about Marxism, first of all. <laughs> but that's, that's the misnomer, that's the misunderstanding uh, about covenant theology. There's a belief that it was concocted somewhere else and, and it's brought and laid on top of Scripture and it's going to bend Scripture to fit itself. And what I want to say to you is that when you, when you read Scripture carefully and you see this kind of language like in John 17, like in Romans 5, like in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 and many, many, many other places, you begin to see that in those places you're getting a peek at, at the structure that's there that you never saw before. Far from being foisted upon the text to bend the text, you're recognizing what is actually there in the text that you never saw before, though it was there all along. And so I hope, I hope you can see, or at least hear me saying, that it's a biblical conception. It's not something placed on top of it. And there, there's proof all over the place that this is the subterranean structure. Why does it matter? I've got, I've got five reasons here. I guess it's a day for lists. Uh, I've got five reasons. First of all, it helps us to see the, how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. It helps us to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. I know there are a lot of Christians that kind of just spend their time in the New Testament. Start over in Matthew chapter 1, read the New Testament. Start over in Matthew chapter 1, read the New Testament. And they're, they're focusing, and the reason is, maybe they're suspicious of the Old Testament, maybe they don't understand uh, all the laws and all the Leviticus and uh, all that kind of stuff, and maybe that kind of stuff, but usually it's because they don't understand how the two relate to one another. And when they go over to Leviticus, they get confused, comparing that to Romans. When they go somewhere and read about uh, something in the Psalms, it's confusing. It's difficult for them to understand because they've been, they've been weaned, as it were. They've been trained in New Testament. They think only New Testament, but without reference to the Old Testament. Covenant theology helps us to see that substructure that ties them together, helps us to see the storyline that's being told in both the Old and the New Testament, helps us to put them together. Secondly, and very closely related to that, it helps us understand the flow of redemptive history. What has God been doing since He said, let there be light? What's He been accomplishing? Is there a direction? Has He changed directions? Plan A didn't work out, so move on to plan B. What's been going on in history? How, how are we to read, again, connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament? I was, I was trained 
to think that, that God was doing a very uh, d- different thing with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament that got thwarted in some way in the Gospels. And so now something new is happening, something never imagined. That's what I was trained with. But when we begin to see this substructure of the covenants, we begin to see that, no, God is accomplishing a grand purpose. He's been working in redemptive history to accomplish this that we're seeing happen, and He's going to bring it to a consummation when He saves all of those who are His. We see this brought to a conclusion, and so it helps us to understand the flow of redemptive history rather than it being in fits and starts, rather than being segmented. We see that God is accomplishing this purpose, and you can see that because you see the substructure. Thirdly, it helps us make sense of the federal headship of Adam and, and of Christ. Again, I said this is kind of my own um, uh, testimony, as it were, regarding covenant theology. As I was studying through Romans chapter 5, I kept seeing this concept of federal headship. We have a federal head. We were born with the federal head of Adam by faith in Christ. Uh, we have Christ as our federal head. And, and whereas we had all the penalties of the broken relationship, the broken covenant between Adam and God when we were born in Adam, in Christ we have all the benefits of the, of the maintained and the completed and the perfect covenant relationship between Jesus and the Father, the things that He accomplished for us. And so we inherit the benefits of that. Fourthly, helps us make sense of the presence of law and gospel in the Bible, how to relate the two together and see how they relate to us. When you read the commands, do this, you know, you know how to fit that in. When you read the promises of God about what has been accomplished for us, we know how to fit that in. We know how to relate the two together. And fifthly, Covenant theology helps us understand the nature of our relationship with our God. It gives us assurance. It forms our identity as the people of God. It gives us the right motive for obedience. It tells us, it specifies just like a wife and a husband. When you put the ring on and you say, I do, and, and you're pronounced man and wife, something has changed and you are now clear in your mind of the nature of your relationship with your spouse. You understand who you are. You understand who your spouse is. You understand what your relationship is like, and you grow and all those things, but you have a a bedrock foundation. This is my wife. It clarifies likewise for us in our relationship with God. He is our God. We are in covenant relationship with Him that has all of these things that go with it that have been spelled out for us in Scripture that we study when we study covenant theology. So, I know this is hopelessly brief, but it's an introduction. It's meant to, it's meant to prime the pump of your thoughts. And in your own Bible reading, I would encourage you to listen for covenant-type language. I would encourage you to uh, observe where it is. And you're going to see more and more and more. It's all over the place. And you never saw it before. I didn't see it before. After I read uh, Romans 5 and preached Romans 5, I kind of became ashamed of myself looking back at, wow, I didn't understand that and that and that and that. And I'm a pastor. But as we 
uncover that subs, the, the, the structure, the underground, the bones, we begin to understand Scripture in, a, in a, a gloriously new way. Not because it's new, not because it's changed, but because we understand it better. We have a better look at it, what it's trying to say and the way it is structured. So, that's our introduction to uh, this topic of covenant theology. We'll come back to it and, and uh, continue to work through in, uh, over the next 10, 12 weeks, however long it is till December-ish. And, uh, and so we'll get a, a much better uh, understanding of this. But I would encourage you in your own reading, pay attention. Pay attention to that covenantal language, and you will see it all over. And it will make the page come alive in ways that it has not before. You will understand things that have been confusing to you when you understand God's covenant relationship with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have it in our language in multiple versions. We get to meet together and study. Thank you for this Sunday evening, particularly, where we've gotten to join together to talk about a subject we've never discussed at this church, never, uh, never talked about your covenant relationship with us in these ways, never, never understood, perhaps, never, never broached this subject of of being in Adam versus being in Christ and what that means. Never talked about this eternal covenant uh, within the members of the Trinity and what that means for us. Father, I pray that this would be the start of a, a glorious and exciting study for us as we see what is here in the text, as we examine and understand how it is you have structured your word and this salvation that we get to benefit from. Help us, I pray. Give us wisdom. And give us insight into your word. And I pray that indeed our understanding of our relationship with you would grow and would strengthen. We would have such joy and such peace and such motivation that we've never had before because we understand what it means that we are in covenant relationship with you. So Father, I pray that you would bless us. We look forward to joining together again next week. Help us in our studies this week. We honor you and we thank you for Jesus, our Savior our federal head, and for all the benefits that are ours in him, namely peace with you among many, many other glorious blessings. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.